Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Brunnenburg, Part 2 of 3. In the previous podcast, I described the changes occurring in Britain from the fall of the Roman Empire till the death of Offa, the most powerful of the Anglo-Saxon kings of his time. Today I will continue the story of early Britain, and in particular, a fearsome new threat from the seas, the Vikings. In the year 793, three years before Offa's death, the island monastery of Lindisfarne off the Northumbrian coast of Britain was sacked by raiders from the sea. The Anglo-Saxon chronicles describe the monks' shock at the brutality of the attack. Quote, in this year, fierce foreboding omens came over the land of the Northumbrians, and the wretched people shook. There were excessive whirlwinds, lightning, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the sky. These signs were followed by great famine, and a little after those, that same year, on six Ides of January, the ravaging of wretched heathen people destroyed God's church at Lindisfarne. Unquote. This is the first recorded incident of a series of many such attacks on settlements and monasteries, not only in Britain, but also Ireland, northern France and the Low Countries. These raids were the forerunners of waves of migration out of Scandinavia by people who came to be known as the Vikings. We don't know the reasons for the sudden outpouring of peoples from Scandinavia. The Vikings left no written documents, so guesswork is required. They did leave runic scripts carved on stones, but as most of these are memorials to otherwise unknown individuals, they do not tell us very much. Another potential source is the Norse sagas, which were passed on down orally and written down in later centuries. They focus primarily on the great deeds of kings, which can sometimes be linked to known real events, but can't be depended on for historical accuracy. The heroes of the earliest sagas are the Germanic relatives of the Scandinavians who had made their way into the Roman Empire. One example is a set of stories based on the historical Burgundians. This tribe established a small kingdom around the middle of today's Germany, but became enemies of the Roman general Aetius, who we met earlier in the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. At this time, Aetius was in an alliance with Attila, and persuaded the leader of the Huns to wipe out the Burgundians. 
The subsequent massacre of the Germans lay at the heart of many Norse sagas, including that of the Nibelungen, later put to music by Wagner. An interesting point here is how the same popular culture and language was shared then between the tribes of Scandinavians and Germany. However, in the second half of the 7th century, while the Frankish and English kings were being converted by Roman missionaries, the Scandinavians retained their pagan beliefs. This led to a parting of the ways between the southern and northern Germanic peoples. The former came under the influence of Latin literary culture, while the latter rejected it. This cultural split was reinforced by changes in the Scandinavian language during the 8th century, so that by 800 each side would have had trouble understanding each other. Thus a new Scandinavian identity was forged. Back in Britain, after their successful raid on Lindisfarne, the Vikings must have realised that monasteries were rich and easy pickings. They attacked others such as Jarrow in Northumbria and Iona in the islands of the Hebrides. Sailing from their homeland in Norway, their first destination was the Orkney and Shetland Islands. There they defeated the native Celts and colonised these islands, establishing them as bases for further attacks. From there, many invaded northern Scotland and Ireland. Ireland, at the time, had no real sense of political unity. Iron Age warlords competed for regional control. Since the island had never been part of the Roman Empire, there were no cities, no good roads and no effective administration for collecting taxes and maintaining a royal army. The main cultural and economic centres were monasteries, established by St Patrick and other missionaries. From the pagan raiders' point of view, such easily accessible and wealthy establishments were very attractive, especially as they housed large quantities of easily portable treasure in the form of book covers and religious ornaments. Meeting little organised resistance, the Vikings quickly dominated Ireland. After these initial attacks, some decided to settle and found towns, such as Dublin. Over time, new kingdoms were established, exploiting the natural wealth of the island, including Irish slaves, many of whom were sold to Muslim Spain. The invaders began to assimilate with the native population to form a so-called Hiberno-Norse culture. While the Norwegians were attacking Britain and Ireland, the Danes were doing the same on the northern coast of France. In the previous podcast, on the Battle of Tours, we met Charles Martel, King of the Franks. His grandson, Charlemagne, king from 768 to 814, built up a strong United Kingdom. But his successors were less effective leaders, and suffered several devastating waves of Viking attacks. I will give more details on the situation on the continent later. The important event for this podcast is a decision taken by some Danes in 865 to turn their attention away from Frankish lands and to start attacking Britain. 
Possibly the Carolingians were now offering more effective resistance than previous. Anyway, it was bad news for the Anglo-Saxons. A Danish army, led by Ivar the Boneless, sailed to East Anglia in 865. The local king there persuaded the Vikings to make peace. In exchange, he agreed to maintain them over the winter and provide his hosts with horses for their campaign the following spring against Northumbria. The kingdom of Northumbria was already in trouble at the dawn of the Vikings, in the midst of a seemingly endless civil war between its two halves. The northern half, Benizia, was the region north of the River Tees, up to around today's Edinburgh, while Deira, in the south, approximates to today's Yorkshire. Ivar thus met little organised resistance and occupied York with little difficulty. The Vikings were thus able to establish a base in the city, which became an important Viking settlement. In 869 they returned to East Anglia, but this time they could not be persuaded to go away so easily. They attacked and killed the king, and so knocked out another Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Encouraged by what appeared easy pickings, more recruits soon sailed over from Denmark, including a Danish king by the name of Guthrum. The Danes advanced westwards across Britain, seizing the town of Reading on the Thames Valley, which they used as a base to attack the two last remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Mercia and Wessex. For the next couple of years, the Mercians and West Saxons paid off the invaders in exchange for peace. Mercia, however, would not survive much longer. In 874, the Danes sacked the king's royal headquarters at Tamworth, and the king fled to Rome. The Vikings took direct control of northern Mercia and established a client king in the south. Only one Anglo-Saxon kingdom remained, led by King Alfred, the only monarch of England to be granted the name The Great. The attacks against the last remaining Saxon kingdom were led by Guthrum. While Viking ships attacked the southern coastline, the land army took control of the Thames Valley Basin. Having fought earlier against the Vikings, Alfred knew the standard Viking battle strategy. They would form a tight shield wall and position themselves in a defensible position such as high ground. They would then provoke the English into an attack which was repelled before being met with a devastating counter-attack. The Vikings began the attack on Wessex by taking Cambridge, where they remained for a year. King Alfred decided to avoid direct confrontation, opting instead to try and wear the invaders down in small skirmishes. This tactic seemed to be working, and the frustrated Vikings agreed to be paid off in the autumn of 877 in exchange for a truce. Over Christmas, Alfred retired to winter quarters in the town of Chippenham, and it was now when Guthrum made his move. According to the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, he almost managed to capture the king. The Wessex army was forced to scatter and Guthrum took Chippenham as his base for further attacks. 
The Vikings must have felt confident at this point about finishing off the Anglo-Saxons for good. The last Anglo-Saxon king, Stanning, had been reduced to hiding in marshland and making hit-and-run attacks, desperately seizing whatever provisions they could. At this point, Alfred may have considered giving up, like his fellow king of Mercia. Had he done so, then not only England, but the whole English-speaking world may not exist today. Meanwhile, a second Viking army comprising 23 ships and 1,200 fighting men sailed to the Devon coast, apparently part of a planned pincer movement to trap Alfred. But at Contesbury Hill, this force was engaged by an army from Devon, led by a man called Odda, who killed the Viking king, brother of Ivar the Boneless, along with 800 of his men. This good fortune allowed Alfred to make a counter-attack. He met the army of Guthrum 15 miles south of Chippenham and defeated them in the Battle of Eddington. In the words of the Welsh chronicler Bishop Asser, quote, He attacked the whole pagan army fighting ferociously in dense order and by divine will eventually won the victory made great slaughter among them, and pursued them to the fortress, that is, Chippenham. Everything left outside the fortress, men, horses, and cattle, he seized, killing the men, and camped outside the gates. After fourteen days, the pagans were brought to extreme depths of despair, by hunger, cold, and fear, and they sought peace. End quote. The Danish leader not only took the remainder of his force away from Wessex, but agreed to be baptised into the Christian faith. The two leaders thus recognised each other's territories. Alfred in the southwest half of England and Guthrum the northeast, which came to be known as the Danelaw. The immediate danger was over, but Alfred knew he had to make good use of the time he had just bought himself and this he certainly did. He reorganised Wessex into shires, upon which he imposed taxes. Each shire was obliged to provide a militia force to help defend the kingdom against Viking attacks. Towns, bridges and roads were fortified, denying the Vikings mobility and supplies. The fortified towns were called burrs, and would evolve into many of the market towns of today's England. Not only this, Alfred revived the monastic and cultural life, shifting the cultural axis from the ravaged north to the south of England. Nine years later, Wessex was strong enough to retake London and begin to try expanding northwards. Alfred could now have chosen to take over Mercia, but instead left affairs in the hands of Ethelred, who became his son-in-law. When he took London, he immediately handed it over to Mercian control. Thanks to this, Ethelred was staunchly loyal to Alfred, and over the next decade, the two kingdoms more and more acted as one. Ethelred died in 911, and was succeeded by his wife, Ethelfled. She soon begun her part in the Anglo-Saxon combined fortress building programme, establishing new burrs in Danish territories.
These were essentially frontier forts along the limits of Mercian power. The Danes attacked but were unable to undertake protracted sieges, and over time the combined resources of Wessex and Mercia, working in close association, eventually overwhelmed the disunited Danes. One of their successes was the taking of East Anglia by Alfred's son and successor, King Edward the Elder, who was able to make the Danes there accept his rule. During this time, and into the early 900s, the Danes who had settled in Britain were now assimilating, an important part of which was their conversion to Christianity. This process was helped by the fact that the Vikings from Scandinavia at this time preferred attacking Ireland, or settling in the newly discovered island of Iceland, which had no native population to overcome. In fact, from now the Danes in Yorkshire had become a settled, established, landed class, and considered the Norse adventurers from Norway or Dublin as foes rather than kinsmen. It was very fortunate for the Anglo-Saxons that they did not want to join forces with their Scandinavian relatives. In some way, the common threat of the pagan Norwegian Vikings helped form a sense of unity between the Anglo-Saxons and the settled Danes. Join me next week for the conclusion of the story of the Viking attacks. See how they helped in some ways to unify parts of the British Isles and contribute to the shaping of the Britain we are familiar with today. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 